When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Lexicon Valley is sponsored by The Great Courses, with engaging audio and video lectures taught by top professors. Courses like The Story of Human Language. Get up to 80% off the original price when you visit thegreatcourses.com slash lexicon. The following podcast contains explicit language. From Washington, D.C., this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm Bob Garfield with Mike Volo, and today, episode number 56, titled And Infinitum, wherein we discuss how a conjunction can suddenly go all verb on us. Hey, Mikey. Hey, Bobby. How you doing? Splendid. Thank you. And yourself? I'm great. I'm great. So here at Slate, Bob, we have on our phones and our computers, we have an app called Slack. I don't know if you're familiar with this, but it allows us to instant message any of our colleagues, any individual or group of our colleagues. Mm-hmm. It's you know part of this trend in workplaces, I think, to have employees be always reachable at all times. I'd never heard of Slack per se, but I, I understand the capability. I have a fairly similar app at my workstation. It's called, uh, it's called Leave Me the Fuck Alone. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty much the anti-slack. Uh, well, lucky you. I think here at Slate next year, we're all getting multi-channel walkie-talkies implanted in our inner ear. But in any case, one of my colleagues, Dan Coyce, he's the culture editor here at Slate. He wrote on the Whereabouts group on Slack recently. Whereabouts is a channel on Slack whereby you can tell the rest of the staff, I'm going to be out of the office for a couple of hours because I'm going to a dentist appointment, or I am working from home today because the schools are closed and my kids are here. So he wrote on the Whereabouts channel recently, quote, getting offline for a bit to try and write. Aha. Aha. What jumps out at you there? (laughs) (laughs) It's the... uh substitute for an infinitive that is part of English usage, but makes no sense grammatically. Try and write. Yes, exactly. And you sort of tipped your hand here what you think of it. You said it makes no sense grammatically. So I guess this is something that you try to avoid? I probably try to avoid it, but it, you know, it's like trying to avoid freckles. It comes with being raised in English, and I'm sure I use it, I know it confounds my wife, who is a philologist and knows far more about English grammar than I do, but is not a native speaker. Mm. And whenever she encounters it, it's like a baby eating a lemon. Well, more about that at the very end of this episode. But before we talk about try, let's talk about some other verbs that behave in a similar way, right? Verbs that in the verb plus infinitive, verb plus two, plus another verb sometimes appear as verb plus and plus another verb. What are some other verbs that behave that way? I'll be happy to answer that question 
If you'll just tell me the answers. <laughs> okay. So, for example, come and go. In the late 1700s, a guy named James Boswell published a biography of the great lexicographer Samuel Johnson, Dr. Johnson. And this biography was called The Life of Samuel Johnson. In it, Johnson is quoted at one point as saying that he didn't really seek out the company of other people very much. He said, as quoted by Boswell, indeed, I never sought much after anybody. One person he sought after, however, was a guy named George Salmanazer. And Johnson says, quote, I used to go and sit with him at an alehouse in the city. Go and sit. Now, before you comment on that, Bob, I just want to make a quick tangent about this guy, George Salmanazer, and why maybe Johnson would want to seek out his company when he wasn't in the habit of seeking out other people's company. Salmanazer had earlier in his life passed himself off as a kind of expert on the island of Formosa, which is the island that we now call Taiwan. (laughs) (laughs) I know, kind of random. I'm sorry. There are many things that you might have said (laughs) to explain Dr. Johnson's affinity with Salmanazar. There were many things you could have said. (laughs) They could have been good drinking partners. There could have been, I don't know, romance. There could have been a shared interest in Skittles. I just didn't really think... (laughs) I just didn't really expect Formosa to come into play. So, okay. So far, so good. Well, Johnson's interest in Salmanazar wasn't strictly Formosa, but Salmanazar had written a book called An Historical and Geographical Description of Formosa with all of these very fantastical and really barbaric, at times, details of the supposed customs of Formosans. And this included sacrifices and cannibalism and polygamy. There were also details in the book about the supposed native language of Formosa, including its alphabet, all of which, everything in this book was completely fabricated, completely made up. He actually constructed a language in order to perpetrate this fraud. And by the time Johnson had befriended him, Johnson was 30 years younger than Salmanazar. He had been revealed as an imposter, but he was a fascinating character and a kind of man about town. He was clearly very intelligent and he was still revered in literary circles. Because he was such a remarkable fabulist? Yeah, he was just a kind of interesting guy. And he, in his later life, became very religious and wrote a number of theological essays that were well-received and I think even wrote them anonymously. So Johnson apparently sought after his company and they would go have a beer now and then. So again, Johnson said... I used to go and sit with him at an alehouse in the city. So I'm wondering if you think that that construction, go and sit, is analogous to the try and construction that Dan Coyce used. I do. They seem to me and have always seemed to me to be the same quirk of English. Okay. I'll give you yet another example. In the late 1800s, Lewis Carroll wrote a letter to his niece and said, My dear Nella... If Eastbourne was only a mile off from Scarborough, I would come and see you tomorrow. But it is such a long way to come. Now, another tangent here. I looked this up. Eastbourne and Scarborough are about 300 miles apart. Not to suggest that I'm better than Lewis Carroll, Bob. 
but New York City is about 230 miles from where I live in the DC area, and I travel there every other weekend to visit my mother. I don't know if Lewis Carroll had a Prius, as I do, which gets very good gas mileage. No, I know exactly why Lewis Carroll didn't go to visit his niece all that often. Uh, he was Priusless. His only option was Amtrak. And, you know, <laughs> yeah. life is too short. Right, to ride Amtrak. I just want to say, suck it up, Lewis Carroll, and make an effort to see the people you love. So, in any case, what do you think about what he said? I would come and see you tomorrow. All these examples strike me as being of a piece. Okay, I'm going to give you yet one more example of yet another verb. In 1937, E.B. White quit the staff of The New Yorker because, as he put it at the time, he was in a rut. He had been writing the famous notes and comment pieces for a long time, I think possibly even up to a decade at that point, and he was burnt out. So he sequestered himself at his farm in Maine. This was the very farm that would much later be the inspiration for his story, Charlotte's Web. Mm -hmm. That was some story. That was some story. Some pig and some story. Yes, Zuckerman's famous pig. I mean, I can't imagine, is there a childhood that goes by nowadays in America where that is just not a very strong part of it? The answer, unfortunately, is yes. Really? I think that it has probably fallen out of the childhood canon. I'm not sure there is a childhood canon anymore. Huh. I didn't know that. It's kind of heartbreaking. Well, Xander, he's only 19 months old right now, but Xander will surely be well acquainted with Charlotte's Web, I can assure you of that. James Thurber, at the time, who was White's friend and colleague at The New Yorker, he was very sad to learn that White had possibly given up the pen for the pitchfork, and he wrote him a letter, part tongue-in-cheek, that began with a diagnosis of what he thought White's problem was. As far as I can make out, what you have is sheep blast. It comes from an admixture of comment writing and whisk broom catchings. And then the letter goes on for six or seven paragraphs that are mostly very sincere. And then at the very end of the letter, Thurber says, let me know more about whatever goes on and be sure and get tested for sheep blast. Be sure and get tested, not be sure to get tested. So again, is this of a piece for you? Yeah, yeah, Mike. I mean, maybe I'm missing something, but exhibits A, B, C, and D all seem to demonstrate the same anomaly. And at this stage, I'm just praying, uh, you know, (laughs) if there is a God, Lord, let there not be an exhibit E. I'm just saying. I just wanted to indicate that this is a quirk that exists among a number of verbs and has been used by people that we consider very literate. Yeah. E.B. White and Samuel Johnson are bookends of about three centuries worth of very considered thought about English usage. I think that that is about as well put as is possible. So in 2009, username Iceberg made the mistake of using the construction triand on an internet forum. Now, Bob, you know what happens when you do something grammatically questionable on an internet forum, right? Yeah, your sexuality is questioned, your (laughs) political affiliations are questioned, your parentage, and very humanity. (laughs) I believe the mandatory minimum sentence is the death penalty. (laughs) So username John Whittle responded with the following. It infuriated me that you used and instead of to. 
It made me so angry that I'm posting about it before reading the rest of the thread. I don't even know why people started doing this. It's so far away from anything that would make sense grammatically. Now, back in 1975, in the old literary magazine Encounter, a journalist named Patrick Brogan, who was at the time the Washington correspondent for the Times of London, he wrote that try and, in expressions like I'll try and see, was, quote, universal in the spoken language and is now spreading into print. So if Patrick Brogan and username John Whittle are correct, try and is, first of all, relatively new, and second, incontrovertibly wrong, right? So let's tackle the first question first. Mr. Brogan said that try and is now spreading into print. Brogan was apparently unaware of a little book from the 1600s called The History of Monastical Conventions and Military Institutions with a survey of the Court of Rome or a description of the religious and military orders in Europe, Asia, and Africa for about 1,200 years being a brief account of their institution, confirmation, rules, habits, and manner of living together with a survey of the court of Rome, etc., in all the great offices and officers, ecclesiastical and civil dependent thereon. That's a shaggy dog With title. many other things worthy of note, according to what has been recorded by candid authors of diverse nations. Now, I know you have a copy of this on your coffee table, Bob. It's in every home. No, I, I got the sequel. Yeah. The title's a little briefer. It's called Slack. <laughs> So in this book from the 1600s, the following sentence appears. They try and express their love to God by their thankfulness to him. So try and has been spreading into print, as Brogan might say, for more than 300 years. And in fact, if you look in the Oxford English Dictionary, that's the oldest example you'll find of try and. It's from 1686 when this book was published. And try and, as I suggested with some of the other examples, go and, come and, and be sure and, try and has been used in many cases by the most esteemed writers of English in the history of our language. For example, on the eve of the publication of her second novel, Pride and Prejudice, Jane Austen wrote to her sister Cassandra, with whom she had a very close relationship and wrote many letters. She wrote, I have lopped and cropped so successfully that I imagine it must be rather shorter than Sense and Sensibility altogether. Sense and Sensibility being the first novel that she published. She then went on, now I will try and write of something else. Try and write. Where have I seen that phrase before, Bob? Oh, that's your colleague who uh, wrote on your uh, your Slack app. Yes, it's yes. It's the very, very same construction. Our very own Dan Coyce. A latter-day Jane Austen. Is in very good company with Jane Austen herself. Can I tell you something? Can I just interject here? Actually, I want to interject two things. Please. The first thing I want to say, which I probably should have mentioned earlier, is that Salmanazar is one of the great names ever. <laughs> and I wish that were my name. And it also sounds like some sort of machine that you find in some obscure manufacturing or repair operation. I believe my grandmother was one of the first to operate both the Jacquard loom and the Salmanazar. Precisely. The second thing I want to say is this is such a liberating conversation for me. Because 
you know, as you know, I'm always fighting off my prescriptivist instincts. And it's not just a question of being a scold. It's me avoiding certain constructions because to me they sound vulgar or insufficiently rigorous application of language, even pronunciation. For mm -hmm. example, I say clothes. Now, the whole rest of the English-speaking world says clothes. I say clothes because that strikes me as how it's meant to be pronounced. We're talking about the things that hang in our closet, our attire. Yeah, clothes. And I avoid, <laughs> and I avoid these kind of bastardized constructions such as we're discussing today because they seem just vaguely wrong to me. I don't get angry at others or I don't look down my nose at others who employ it. Oh, I don't believe that last part there. No, I, I really don't. I just, it's not that I, I'm condescending about it. It just kind of gives me an inner flinch. And so to know that Samuel Johnson and Jane Austen and E.B. White, one of my heroes, embrace them, you know, without shame, it, it's liberating for me. This is like... Uh, you feel like naked as a newborn, huh? <laughs> I, I don't know. I feel like I'm in therapy and on the edge of a breakthrough. Oh, that's a lot of responsibility for me, Bob. Some of the brightest minds in psychiatry have been working on you for decades, Bob, and you're telling me that right now, today... I'm bringing you to the verge of a breakthrough? Uh, or a breakdown. I'll, <laughs> okay. you know, time will tell. <laughs> okay, let's just hope it's the latter. So let's now address the concerns of username John Whittle, who called into question the expressions very right to live and breathe in the language. In order to address his concerns, I would like to call to the stand three witnesses. But before I do, let's take a very short break and mention our sponsor, the Great Courses. If you are listening to this podcast, it is because, like me and Bob, you are fascinated by language, which is why I am happy to recommend the Great Courses lecture series called The Story of Human Language. It is taught by Dr. John McWhorter. Professor McWhorter teaches at Columbia University, and some of you may recognize his name because he's been on this podcast before. This series is the story of how a single proto-language around 150,000 years ago has branched out into literally thousands of languages, many of which are still alive today. It's a fascinating course. The Great Courses is celebrating their 25th anniversary with over 500 courses on topics from psychology to history to the hard sciences to, of course, linguistics. And all of them are taught by some of the most engaging and expert professors across the country. The Great Courses has a special limited time offer for Lexicon Valley listeners. You can order from eight of their best-selling courses, including the story of human language, and get up to 80% off the original price. It's a great deal. Don't wait. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash lexicon. That's thegreatcourses.com slash lexicon. Okay, so back to username John Whittle and his incredulity that this expression exists at all. Why? Why, he said. I believe he wrote the word why in all caps, if I remember correctly. Why does this even exist? As I suggested, I'm going to call now for the defense to the stand, Mr. Henry Fowler, the same Henry Fowler, Bob, whose rather retrograde and condescending opinions on the feminine ending S were decried on this show recently. But, but one of the most significant figures 
in English usage yes. ever. Yes, yes. And he has what I would say is a more mature take on try and. This is back in 1926 when his Dictionary of Modern English Usage was published. And he wrote, though try to do can always be substituted for try and do, the latter has a shade of meaning that justifies its existence. I'm curious, Bob, if you agree with this shade that he picks out from try and. I ain't saying it, but I'm curious to know what he's saying. He says that in exhortations, it implies encouragement. In other words, the effort will succeed. In promises, it implies assurance. The effort shall succeed. I think that's actually quite insightful. Hmm. Did you ever see Sideways? Yes. Okay, so you know that these people have very sophisticated palettes and they can mm-hmm. divine things in a Pinot Noir that mere mortals such as us can never, ever identify, right? Right, and Paul Giamatti hates Merlot. And Paul Giamatti hates Merlot. And uh, in exactly the way that I, I watched those people and both failed to grasp but nonetheless envied their ability to identify very subtle nuances in a uh, Pinot vintage. I hear you and I, I note Henry Fowler detecting a shade of difference that I simply cannot detect. Well, think of it this way. If I were to say to Dan Coyce, you know, why don't you get offline for a bit? Uh, clearly, Dan Coyce has a problem, right? He can't get any work done while he's in arm's reach of the internet. <laughs> So if I were to say to him, Dan, why don't you get offline for a bit and try and write? It's an encouragement that almost seems as though it should be accompanied by a pat on the back or a pat on the butt if it were a baseball game, say. If it were the office, it would be a hostile work environment and I would be fired on the spot. It suggests that I believe in him. Once again, you are detecting notes of apricot and cilantro that I cannot taste. So Fowler ends in a very Fowler-esque way in this entry. He says, it is an idiom that should not be discountenanced, but used when it comes natural. Now, I would also like to call to the stand Bergen and Cornelia Evans, brother and sister authors of A Dictionary of Contemporary American Usage, published in 1957. They wrote that try and was a, quote, standard English substitute for try to. They also said, interestingly, that it was used in Great Britain more often than it is in the United States, but it is standard in both countries. Now, I don't think of it as a Britishism in any way, and I wonder if some of our English listeners could weigh in here. Do they have the sense that it's used even more commonly in Britain than it is here? I'd be interested to know. Finally, the defense would like to call Wilson Follett to the stand. He was a writer and professor who taught at Brown University, my alma mater, and died before his great work, which was called Modern English Usage, died before it was published. It was published in 1966. He wrote that try and, although not suited to the highest reaches of eloquence, was nevertheless a sturdy idiom that need not be avoided or changed to try to. He then said, Bob, that the English form, try and, is an old imitation of the Latin rhetorical figure called hendiadis, which means two for one. Now, what is hendiadis? 
Uh, Hendiadys, uh, as I understand it, is a uh, inflammation of the uh, <laughs> chicken uh, as a result of a parasitic infection. Yeah. In fact, my mom had to have her gallbladder removed because she ate a chicken infected with Hendiadys. Hendiadys really actually is a term coined by a Latin grammarian named Servius to describe a figure of speech that Virgil used quite a bit. So in Virgil's poem, Georgics, he wrote, This land will someday yield you the hardiest of vines, streaming with the rich flood of Bacchus. This is fruitful in the grape and in the juice we drink from cups of gold. Now, that phrase, from cups of gold, is sometimes translated from the Latin as golden cups. But neither of those, cups of gold or golden cups, is what Virgil actually wrote in Latin. Pateris labamus et oro. We drink from cups and gold. So where you might expect an adjective and a noun, golden cups, Virgil gives us two nouns joined by and. We drink from cups and gold for rhetorical effect. He did this a lot. He did it in the Aeneid also. And Shakespeare was so fond of this device that by one count, he used it more than 60 times in Hamlet alone. So in Act 1, Scene 2, Horatio tells Hamlet that two knights together had these gentlemen, Marcellus and Bernardo, on their watch in the dead, vast, and middle of the night. Not the vast middle of the night, but the vast and middle of the night. It gives rhetorical potency to the phrase. It also fills out the uh, iambic pentameter. <laughs> right. But he, he could have filled it out in other ways, presumably. And he, again, used this construction across many of his plays and in some of them, you know, dozens of times. I'm not actually seeing the connection between this uh, succubus, as you call it, What's it called? <laughs> and Hendiadus. <laughs> you know, that reminds me, I've got an appointment with my Hendiabus. Uh, <laughs> uh, they, they seem to perform different functions, the, the Hendiadus and the substitution of and for to in the verb form. Perhaps I'm just obtuse, but I, I'm having trouble detecting the connection as I would have trouble detecting the notes of apricot in the elixir of Bacchus. Well, remember, Follett said that it was an imitation of Hendiadys. Let's see if we can flesh this out with another example. In another letter to her sister, Jane Austen was updating Cassandra. She wrote many, many letters to Cassandra. She was updating Cassandra on some very boring family matters. And then after several paragraphs of that, she wrote, there, I may now finish my letter and go and hang myself, for I am sure I can neither write nor do anything which will not appear insipid to you after this. So she could have said simply, finish my letter and go hang myself, or go to hang myself. But she said, go and hang myself, which, as Follett suggests, is modeled on Hendiadys and arguably packs a particular rhetorical punch, right? It's additive. It suggests that there is a joining of two concepts with the conjunction and, which is precisely what Hendiadys does. All right. Another possibility is that she wasn't writing sentence sensibility. She was writing her sister and wasn't paying all that much attention to a rhetorical effect. She was just, you know, transcribing random thoughts, but, you know, could be. I think that the dark humor of telling your sister that you're going to go hang yourself 
suggests otherwise, that she was trying to come across as rhetorically effective there. No, you're right. You know, it, it was a punchline. And uh, so she probably gave some thought to how she was going to uh, phrase it. Yeah, I'm, I'm not arguing with you. <laughs> I'm, I'm not trying to be hendiadactic. No, of course not. Now, a couple of words on the limitations of try and. So a few days after Dan Coyce wrote that Slack message, he wrote the following. Again, <laughs> he has apparently a very big problem with the internet. He wrote, trying to write this morning will be mostly offline. Note that he wrote, trying to write. In other words, try and doesn't work with any other form of the verb. So as the brother and sister team of Bergen and Cornelia Evans put it, try and can be used only with the form try and not with tries, tried, or trying. In other words, we do not say he tried and came. We don't say he tries and comes. And doesn't work with what are called the inflected forms of the verb. It only works with try, not the ed ending, not the ing ending. Also, you can put a negative immediately before the try in try and. So I could say, don't try and write this morning, Dan Coyce, continue surfing the internet. But you can't put the negative right after the try. I can't say, try not and write, Dan Coyce. I'd have to say, try not to write. So it has that limitation when you start throwing in negatives. And you can't use try and with an inverted sentence. So in his translation of that very same Virgil poem that I quoted earlier, John Dryden writes of the vanquished bull and says, to repair his strength, he tries, hardening his limbs with painful exercise and rough upon the flinty rock, he lies. To repair his strength, he tries. That just wouldn't work as and repair his strength, he tries. So all of these limitations combined lead the editors at Merriam-Webster's Usage Dictionary to conclude the following. And this gets back to what you mentioned at the very beginning of this episode with regard to your wife. They say, these restrictions give native speakers no problem whatever. But if you are a learner of English, you will want to keep them in mind and maybe stick to the simpler try to. Yeah, I mean, she's the master of other irregularities of English. But this one, not, since there's an alternative that scans according to the ordinary rules of grammar, she has defaulted to that. And, you know, it still looks very quizzically when she encounters try and. It not only looks quizzically, but has a tendency to correct our daughter for what she perceives to be a, um, a grammar error. When you say quizzically, do you mean quasically? <laughs> no. <laughs> listeners of this podcast, That's regular a, listeners of this podcast will know. That is a reference to a previous <laughs> episode. Yes. Considering the word quiz and its cousin, quaz. Mike, to make that joke assumes a degree of fandom and continuity <laughs> that I don't think we can really claim. All right. So here's the final rub, Bobby. Are you ready? Yep. You're sitting down, right? As always. The editors at the Oxford English Dictionary, as you know, attempt to find the earliest use in print of words and phrases in English, right? This is important because it helps us trace the evolution and development of our language. But it's a kind of never-ending process. And the OED is constantly revising its entries with what are newly discovered 
earlier citations, what are called antedatings. The entry for the verb try hasn't been updated in quite a while, so I got in touch with our friend Catherine Connor Martin, who has been on this podcast before, talking about Oxford's Word of the Year, which I believe was vape. She's the head of U.S. Dictionaries at Oxford University Press. And I said, what do you have there in your files? Because they are constantly gathering string on words and phrases. What do you have there in your files that hasn't yet made it into the dictionary? So here then are the earliest known citations for both try to and try and, neither of which you'll find yet in the Oxford English Dictionary. Hold it, Mike. Fanfare. <laughs> I thought maybe I would put in a trumpet sound there, Bob, when you said fanfare, but I think I'll just leave in your rendering of it. No, that's not, that's not a good idea. There, we've had enough musicality for me for probably a good solid two years. No, I think you did a great job. Okay, so in 1616, in a book of fairy tales and fables uh, published by a guy named Thomas Scott, the following sentence appears. Nature first did try to make right eyes by making yours awry. It seems like a bit of an insult, maybe. Yeah, I, I believe he's saying you're cross-eyed. Nature learned from that, and uh, the rest of us look just fine. Yeah. So that, as far as we know, is the earliest use of to with the verb try, try to. And that reminds me of a Shakespeare sonnet, and I'm not sure I have it right, but something along the lines of when in disgrace with fortune in men's eyes and I alone beweep my outcast state. There's a certain, you know, yeah. similarity, right? Yeah, I see it. You know, as if this episode couldn't get any more literate. Boom. <laughs> so the earliest citation of try and appears in what seems to be a, a rather quotidian Scottish business record that says the council ordains the treasurer to try and speak with John Kyle. I don't know who John Kyle is, but he's wanted by the treasurer. This appears, Bob, in 1599. As Catherine Connor Martin said, Whoa. try and and try to are within spitting distance of each other. But as of right now, we have reason to believe that try and might actually predate try to in the English language. Take that, internet flamers. So, Bob, I think that you should go on living out the rest of your life, never thinking twice about using and in this way. Like I said, man, liberating. And if anyone ever corrects you on this usage again, including your wife, you could just start throwing out names like Jane Austen and E.B. White and Samuel Johnson, and you could tell them to just go stick it. Yeah, I'll tell, I'll tell them to go and stick it. <laughs> All right, if you have any thoughts about try and, please write to us at lexiconvalley at slate.com. That's lexiconvalley at slate.com. Please follow us on Twitter at lexiconvalley and subscribe to our feed if you have not already done so and get others to subscribe. Look for Lexicon Valley in the iTunes store. I want to thank all of the language mavens that I cited and quoted here in this episode, but especially the great editors, the august editors of the Merriam-Webster's Usage Dictionary who were invaluable in putting together this episode. 
Joel Meyer is our managing producer and Andy Bowers, our executive producer. Lexicon Valley is part of the Panoply network of podcasts. To find all of the great podcasts in the Panoply network, visit iTunes.com slash Panoply. All right, Mikey. Listen, I got to run. Um, I'm going to try and get my dark suit down to the Salmonazer before it closes. <laughs> well, tell him I said hello. I'm going to have a drink with him in the ale house later on in the city. <laughs> right. Hey, we done here? Yeah, we're done. Later, Gator. <laughs>